Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46. We're going to get there, uh, probably closer to the end of what we're going to talk about tonight, but it'll give you a place to start. You may want to take some notes here. I've got a decent number of things that I want to read to you from, uh, we're, going to, we're going to talk about the Presbyterian Church, and some of the other uh, denominations that we've talked about have sort of been this way as well, but you're talking about 500 years of history. Uh, where a lot of stuff has happened in 500 years. And so trying to put all of this together in a way that makes sense and uh, without giving you too much uh, is, is a pretty difficult task. And so what I think I'm going to end up doing is probably splitting this up between three weeks. Um, we're going to get into some of, ju- just in talking about their history, we're going to get into some of their doctrine tonight and then look at a few of the, th- of the things from the Bible on why we don't agree with it. Um, but I think, I think um, and, and I'll probably wrap up with this when we get to the end of all of it as well, but I think, I think the Presbyterian Church started off like a whole lot of others. Uh, they have some doctrine that, that, that we don't agree with as Baptists that separates us from the Presbyterian Church, but I think very early on especially they were preaching the gospel. And um, you still have uh, certain sects within the Presbyterian Church that are still preaching the gospel, I believe. Uh, but they, in order to continue doing that, have had to separate from the mainline Presbyterian Church. And so um, we'll find uh, some of those. Um, perhaps you've heard of Ian Paisley and uh, some of the other guys in the same vein as he is in, in Ireland and Scotland and, and uh, some of those areas. Um, uh, I've heard Ian Paisley preach many messages, and he's very, very solid on the gospel. Um, he probably has some other doctrines that I don't necessarily agree with him on, but again, I think, I think um, early on the Presbyterians um, were very much like us in a lot of ways, minus a few of the doctrines that we do disagree on, which we're going to talk about and why we disagree on them. But uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, mid-1900s, really the Presbyterian Church as a denomination took a hard left turn. And anytime a denomination does that, um, doctrinally, you're going to get way off on a lot of other things as well. And now, Presbyterian Church USA, um, a lot of times it's just um, denoted PC USA, uh, is very liberal and has adopted a lot of the um, you know, acceptance of homosexuality and homosexual marriages by, by uh, Presbyterian clergy and um, abortion in a lot of ways and a lot of other things that they've accepted. Of course, you know, um, honestly, I think, I think one of the first things that they started getting off in was um, allowing women preachers, uh, uh, ordaining women clergy. Late 1800s when that started. And by the 1900s, they started allowing more and more and more of that. And then by the 1950s, they completely redid their entire catechism, if you will, or whatever it is, their, their book that they use that kind, of, that, that kind of directs the denomination, completely rewrote it because they had so many things that were so liberal that they, had, they, they couldn't just continue on with what they were doing. They had to rewrite it. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I want to give you a quick synopsis of the Presbyterianism. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the denomination, but Presbyterian is part of the Reformed tradition, which is, or within the Protestant, you know, within Protestantism that traces the origin back to the Church of Scotland. And we're going to, we got to go all the way back to the five and six hundreds to get back to this, but really it arose out of the Reformation. Um, But Reformed theology, 
is something that is really making a return in America, um, which is basically Calvinism, and it's starting, to, it's starting amongst certain denominations and certain groups to really start to make a push again, and that's, that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight, but Presbyterian churches derive their name from the Presbyterian form of government. Um, it's the presbytery that, that runs uh, or represents the assemblies of elders, and that's, that's called a presbytery, and so Presbyterian is where that comes from. But a lot of Reformed churches are organized that way, but the word Presbyterian, when you capitalize that word, is, is uh, often very, very often applied uniquely to churches that trace their roots to the Church of Scotland or to English dissenter groups that formed during the English Civil War which we're going to talk about as well, and that was all the way back in the 1640s and 50s, and uh, that's honestly, that's, that's about the time that it came to the United States because of that as well, but Presbyterian theology typically emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the authority of the scriptures, and then the necessity of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which again, I believe um, that especially early on, and then those that are holding to the fundamentals of Presbyterianism are preaching the true gospel. Um, I, I think there, there's, there's a possibility that many people within Presbyterianism are saved. Um, they get off on some other doctrines that, that again, that, that we don't agree with, but that's where our, our disagreement is. It's not necessarily with their authority of scriptures. They, they believe in the authority of scriptures. And honestly, the Presbyterian, um, the fundamental Presbyterian church holds to the King James only as their, as their source of, of uh, doctrine. So, they're, they're like us in a lot of ways, minus a few of these other doctrines that we're going to talk about. But this is according to the website of the Presbyterian Church USA. By the way, you can find a whole lot about a denomination by going to their website. They, um, they essentially, they, their website is their official statement on all of these things. And if you go to the Presbyterian Church USA website, they have a list, a long list of where do we stand on these issues? And they just have one issue after another, and they have a statement about each one of them. And a lot of those come from their, their, their books of, you know, um, directing doctrines and so on. But they say this, Presbyterianism, in a wide sense, is the system of church government by representative assemblies called presbyteries in opposition to government by bishops, which is the Episcopal system, or by congregations, which is congregationalism. By the way, we'll see congregationalism and Presbyterianism running together a lot. Uh, but in its strict sense, Presbyterianism is the name given to one of the groups of ecclesiastical bodies that represent the features of Protestantism emphasized by French lawyer John Calvin, whose writings crystallized much of the Reformed thinking that came before him. So that's, that's from their website and kind of gives them in a quick nutshell. But Presbyterianism uh, and Presbyterian church government was, um, was solidified, I guess you could say, in Scotland by the Acts of Union in 1707. And again, this is something that we can really get into the weeds about. You'll just have to trust me on this, and, and uh, you can go back up and look Acts of Union if you want to. But it actually created the Kingdom of Great Britain, created the Kingdom of Scotland as well at the same time. But in, in fact, most Presbyterians found in England can trace a Scottish connection, and the Presbyterian denomination was, uh, was also taken to North America mostly by Scots and Scots-Irish. Uh, they were the ones who spread that in America, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week, but Presbyterians in the United States also came from New England Yankee communities that had originally been Congregationalists, but changed because they had an agreed upon, was called the, the Plan of Union, 
1801, and they, they did that. The Congregationalists and the Presbyterians came together uh, for the sake of reaching the frontier areas with the gospel. And, uh, you know, obviously the American frontier was just wide open then, and they were very much on the cusp, on the, on the cusp leading edge of, of getting out into those frontiers with the gospel. So the Presbyterian denomination in Scotland, um, all those denominations that are there in Scotland that are Presbyterian hold to the Reformed theology of John Calvin and his immediate successors. But there's a range of theological views within each one of those denominations. And there's, there's, there's a good number of them that actually are relatively decent in size, and they disagree with each other on a, on a lot of issues. Um, they're still Presbyterian, mainly because of their form of government, but local congregation of churches that use Presbyterian polity, which we're going to talk about again next week, but they're governed by sessions that are made up of congregations, which they call you know, their, their elders, and then it's a conciliar approach, which conciliar means that it's, they adhere to councils. Whatever the council decides, that's what they go with as a, as a whole. Um, and then they have government by synod and by general, council, uh, general assembly. Um, and and that's, that's where all the levels of decision-making are that decide what the Presbyterian doctrine is going to be. And that's what runs the whole thing. So according to Wikipedia, there's, there's roughly 75 million Presbyterians in the world. That's a lot. Obviously, there's 8 billion people-ish in the world, but 75 million is, is, a lot of, is a lot of people. In the United States, and this is according to the, the Presbyterian Church USA website, they're the largest denomination within the Presbyterian Church, kind of by far. Um, but according to them, they had, as of 2021, 1.1 million people in their, in their uh, denomination. So they had 8,000 congregations on top of that. So, you know... Give or take, there's probably five or six million Presbyterians in the United States, 75 million in the world. So you can, you know, obviously it came here from Europe and other places, uh, but it's, it's remained big in other parts of the world. Well, in the 20th century, and this again is, is where a lot of them got off, some Presbyterians played a very important role in the ecumenical movement, including the World Council of Churches, which is something that we mentioned, I think I mentioned this uh, when we were talking about uh, Lutheranism. But the World Council of Churches is something that, you, that we will never touch with a hundred-foot pole. That is trying to bring all of the denominations together. And Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, let's all come together for the sake of the gospel. Well, I'm sorry, but most of them are not preaching the, the gospel. And we don't need a World Council of Churches to try to do anything, but, but there was a lot of Presbyterians who were helpful in getting them involved in that ecumenical movement. And a lot of Presbyterian de denominations have found ways of working together with other Reformed denominations and Christians of other traditions, quote-unquote, especially in the World Communion of Reformed churches. And again, uh, not something that we want to have anything to do with. But some Presbyterian churches have entered into union with other churches like Congregationalists and Lutherans and Anglicans and Methodists, and we've talked about a lot of those things. There is nothing that we have in common with them other than that we, you know, have this, the quote-unquote same Jesus, right? I mean, a lot of them are going about all of this stuff in the wrong way as far as trying to get to heaven, and they've got their own ideas about how to get to heaven. It's not by Jesus Christ alone, even though many of them would say that that's what it is. And I think, for the most part, like, like a lot of the um, Presbyterian Church, or much of the Presbyterian Church, like a lot of the other mainline denominations, has moved away from its foundings and its doctrines, its practice, 
And it's, uh, and I don't, I, I mean, from the 16, 17, 1800s, I don't think it's anything like it today like it was back then. And a lot of the names that we know in Christianity, um, a lot of the really well-known preachers of the past were Presbyterians. I say a lot, but there's, there's a good number of them that if I started listing some of these names, you'd say, wow, I didn't know that guy was Presbyterian. Again, because they were preaching the gospel and they were standing for the truth of the word of God. Often a few doctrines, but standing for the truth of the Word of God. So let's get into it. We're going to look at their history, and then we'll look at some of their doctrines. And like I said, we'll take a few weeks. By the way, here's what I'm going to do. Um, we did this maybe three or four years ago, um, but we've talked about all these other different denominations and all of these other cults and everything else. And, and what I want to do when we finish up with this in a few weeks is to go back to what it means to be a Baptist. Um, and, and go through a lot of those things, and then talk about some of the differences even amongst the Baptists. Uh, I was talking to Kevin, and we said, what's the difference between independent Baptists and Southern Baptists? There is differences, otherwise we'd be Southern Baptists, right? So what sets us apart? What, what sets Baptists apart from all of these other denominations? And then what sets the individual Baptists apart? There's, there's a lot of different denominations of Baptists, probably a lot of them that you've never even heard of. Um, you know, obviously, Reformed Baptist is one of the ones that I mentioned that is getting very big. Um, but you have American Baptist, you have Southern Baptist, you have uh, Primitive Baptist, you have you have two two seed in the Spirit Baptist, and you have all kinds of stuff that are that actually are part of the Baptist Church, right? Um, what's the difference? And we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take a few of those and, and go through them. But again, to get back to the history of the Presbyterian Church. The roots of Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterianism are found in the Reformation in the 16th century, which the example of John Calvin's Republic of Geneva, again, another thing that you could really go back and look into. It's, it's pretty interesting. But uh, that was very influential. And um, here's another thing. You know, a lot of these denominations that came out during that time, that, that I guess that you could say came out of, Rep, out of the Reformation, which again is Protestantism because they were protesting the Catholic Church, right? And a lot of these guys uh, came out of the Catholic Church. And so they still had a lot of those traditions that they were holding on to. That's why they're Protestant. Baptists are not Protestant. We're not part of the Protestant movement. We were never part of the Catholic Church to be able to protest anything against it. They, they were always Protestants, if you want to call it that, right? Uh, because we've always protested the Catholic Church. Um, the term Baptist didn't come around until the 1600s, by the way. Um, but... Um, we'll talk about that later as we get into it. But um, a lot of these guys, Presbyterians and so on, uh, ended up doing their best to make that denomination part of the state religion, if you will. And Geneva was one of those, the Republic of Geneva. I've got a lot of quotes that I'm going to read to you um, that will hopefully make it go a little bit faster. But this comes from the Handbook of Denominations, and it says this, originating between 1534 and 1560 with the Protestant theological program of John Calvin in France and Switzerland, Presbyterian refers to a church governed by presbyters, which is representatives. This denomination places great emphasis on the theology of God's sovereignty over the world and people's lives. Calvin was French and trained in the law. Turning to theology, his keen legalistic mind and lust for freedom from the rigid confining forms of Roman Catholicism drove him as a fugitive to Geneva, where he quick, quick, quickly grasped the reins of leadership in the Reformed sector. 
Resolute and often harsh with his opponents, he established his theological system in the Swiss capital, making it, according to Macaulay, the cleanest and most wholesome city in Europe. Calvin's whole thought revolved around the concept of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God in his universe, the sovereignty of Christ in salvation, the sovereignty of the scriptures in faith and conduct, the sovereignty of the individual conscience in the interpretation of the will and word of God. Again, this, this one also comes from the Handbook of Denominations, but strictly speaking, John Calvin did not found Presbyterianism. He merely laid the foundation upon which it was constructed in Switzerland, Holland, France, England, Scotland, and Ireland. From France came the Huguenots, and by 1560, there were in that country 2,000 churches of Presbyterian complexion. The people of Holland established a Dutch Reformed Church. British Presbyterians gained courage in their struggle against Bloody Mary Tudor, and from Scotland came the Covenanters and John Knox. So, see a lot of things that came out of that, but most of them were all part of this Reformed theology. And we'll talk about what that is in just a little bit, and you, hopefully you'll understand it. But let's, talk, let's, go, let's go way back and look at the early history of that. Uh, Presbyterian tradition, particularly that the Church of, of Scotland traces its roots to the early Christian church founded by St. Columba through the 6th century Hiberno-Scottish mission. So we're going all the way back to the 500s that they actually can kind of trace their history back to. Uh, but tracing their apostolic origin... All the way to St. John, the Coldies practiced Christian monasticism, which is a, 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 key of, uh, of, a key feature of Celtic Christianity in that region, where the presbyter, quote, exercising authority within the institution while the different monastic institutions were independent of one another. So a, a church in Scotland, the church in Scotland, kept the Easter tradition, right, the, the celebration of Easter uh, on a different day, than the Roman calendar did, which is, you know, what we follow for the most part. But, um, and then, which is kind of interesting as well, the way that they distinguished themselves um, was that their monks, you, you know the traditional picture of, of a monk, right, with the hair that's uh, all the way around their head and the big, you know, the big bald part in the middle. Uh, that's, I mean, it's not that all the monks were bald. They shaved their head that way. And so to distinguish themselves from these other different denominations, the monks would shave their heads in different ways so that you could tell the difference between which, you know, which monastery they were a part of and everything else, which I thought was funny. They call that tonsure, um, but it's just a unique style of tonsure. They would shave their hair or clip their hair in different ways. So you know, they had that little ring around the outside of their head, but the shaving was different, and uh, the size was different and everything else. But anyway, the Synod of Whitby... In 1664, ended that distinction and said, quote, that Easter would be celebrated according to the Roman date, not the Celtic date. And so although the Roman uh, influence came to dominate the church in Scotland, certain Celtic influences remained in that Scottish church, which remember, we said that a lot of the Presbyterian came from Scottish and Scots-Irish descent, right? So the influence of this Celtic church in Scotland continued on, and so the singing of metrical hymns, many of them set to the old Celtic Christianity, Scottish traditional and folk tunes, later became a distinctive part of the Scottish Presbyterian worship. Well, according officially to them, Presbyterians traced their history to the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation. So all of those things that happened in the five, six, seven hundreds were, were important to them, but a lot of that was lost as it went through, and of course, the 500s to the 1500s most of the world was mired in Catholicism, and a lot of that stuff got lost until the Reformation happened and those things started to be reborn. The beginning of 
Presbyterianism as a distinct movement occurred really during the late 16th century Protestant Reformation. And so as the Catholic Church started to resist the Reformers, which remember, you had the Spanish Inquisition, you had all of those things where they were just, they were torturing and killing anybody that dissented to the Catholic Church in an effort to wipe out this Reformation. But the more they tried to wipe it out, the stronger it grew and the more people started opening their eyes and saying, hang on, they're so desperate to keep this power, why, you know? And so several different theological movements splintered from the church and different denominations were born throughout that time, which again, we've talked about, the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and some of these other denominations all got their birth around that time. Presbyterianism was especially influenced by John Calvin, the French theologian, and he's credited with the development of Reformed theology, which again, we're going to talk about, but we have a picture of him there, Brother Josh. I put that before that. There we go, John Calvin. They all look the same. Uh, they all had those, those funny-looking hats and long beards, right? Um, we'll see a picture of John Knox in a second because I'm going to mention him. Um, in fact, you can go ahead and put that picture up there, Brother Josh, but John Knox was a Scottish Catholic priest who studied with Calvin in Geneva, and he brought back Reformed teachings to Scotland. So again, he looks the same. That's a wood carving of him. They obviously didn't have pictures back then, but uh, I mean, if, if you were to see those two pictures, you probably wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between John Knox and John Calvin. They look very similar, but they worked together, and then John Knox ended up bringing that doctrine back to Scotland which again is going to come up big here in just a minute. But the Presbyterian Church traces its ancestry back primarily to Scotland. Well, in August of 1560, all right, you have to follow, follow closely with this if you can, the Parliament of Scotland adopted what's called the Scots Confession as the creed of the Scottish Kingdom. Again, you have to remember that a lot of these nations were very much used to Catholicism as their form of not just religion, but their form of government. So many of these nations, when they, when they uh, threw off Catholicism, didn't know what to do other than to, and I'm not giving them a pass, but this is what they knew, instead of, you know, well, we're not Catholics anymore, we're, we're Presbyterians, so we're going to adopt that as our national religion. And that's what a lot of them did. And, and again, if you didn't accept Presbyterianism, you were tortured. You were, you know, you were uh, imprisoned. You were whatever until you accepted it. Um, Presbyterianism wasn't as bad maybe as Lutheranism and some of these others, but, but it was still the same way. That's why they say John Calvin was not a very nice guy to his opponents. Uh, people who opposed John Calvin's theology, uh, many of them were not just, you know, he didn't just, he wasn't just mean to them. They killed him. And so, you know, it's still it's that same mindset that if you don't agree with me, then you deserve to die until you say that you agree with me. It's, it's not Christianity. Um, but again, in, uh, this Parliament of Scotland adopted the Scots Confession. In December, so just later on that year of 1560, the first book of discipline, as it was called, was published outlining important doctrinal issues, but also establishing regulations for church government. Uh, including the creation of these 10 ecclesiastical districts with appointed superintendents that later became known as presbyteries. And that's where Presbyterianism really started to get its birth. But it came out of this form of government in Scotland. And in time, the Scots Confession would, would be replaced by the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. Those were formulated by the Westminster Assembly between 1643 and 1649. 
But again, that's where this idea of the Presbyterian form of government started to formulate. Well, the doctrine of the Presbyterian Church is traced to the Westminster Assembly that was held in England from 1643-ish to 1648-49. And this assembly of ministers was called by the English Parliament to establish a government in the Church of England that would do away with bishops. And again, they were trying to throw off the Catholic uh, uh, Church and throw off the Catholic doctrines and all of those other things. And there was tremendous disgust at the time with the king, who was Charles I. He was the successor to James, who was the uh, King James King James of the King James Version fame, if you will. Um, but one of the chief products of this assembly was the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I'm going to read fairly extensively from here in a little bit to, to show you exactly where they stand on a lot of those things. But um, that Westminster Confession of Faith really was the embodiment of everything that John Calvin and his uh, successors were teaching and they expressed the doctrinal platform of Presbyterians in England, Scotland, and America. That's what this Westminster Confession of Faith was. So this assembly also produced shorter and longer catechisms, which together became the Westminster Confession, and um, they're called the Westminster Standard. And again, this is the type of church government where the Westminster Confession of Faith is what runs the denomination. This is what we go by to determine what we should and should not do, what we do and do not believe, what we agree and do not agree with, and so on. That's the type of church government that we're talking about. But this Westminster Confession of Faith stood for a long time. And according to their website, again, that details their history, it says this, The most important standards of Orthodox Presbyterianism are the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms of 1647. The chief distinctive features set forth in the Westminster Declarations of Belief are Presbyterian church government, Calvinistic theology, and the absence of prescribed forms of worship. That's, that's it in a nutshell, but there's a lot in that Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession of Faith has statements in it that, um, that a Bible-believing Christian cannot agree with and has to oppose and has to reject, but the Westminster Confession of Faith exalts Jesus Christ as the Savior in, uh, uh, in a particularly precise and a very well-worded manner, if you will. But other denominations um, have, have based their confessions off of this Westminster Confession of Faith uh, because of how precise and how, how uh, well-worded, if you will, that it was. But let me, let me give you some excerpts from this just to give you an idea of... of um, what this Westminster Confession of Faith is about. And just, just think about um, how much like us this is, all right? Under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. They listed all 66 books of the English Bible, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith in life. What a great statement. The Bible is, is the rule. Here's another one. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Here's another. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heaven, uh, heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, 
the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Great statement about the Bible. Here's another one. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now that is in direct opposition to a lot of the other doctrines that were, that were uh, popping up during that time, especially the Catholic Church. And then, of course, a lot of these other cults that came along after that. Um, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical, so as in all controversies of religion the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have right unto the interest in the Scripture, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the Scripture may have hope. Again, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of counsels, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. Here's what they say uh, about God. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passion, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. What a great statement about God, right? Here's a statement about the Trinity. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Great statements. And again, a lot of that Westminster Confession is written that way. And uh, very much lines up with, with our doctrine and what we believe. But I want to point out also that the Westminster Confession had a lot of statements that purposefully rejected the doctrine of the Catholic Church and made it, made it a point to reject those things. Uh, it contained statements that denied the inspiration of the Apocrypha, uh, explicitly cut it out of the Bible, because it's not a part of the Bible. Um, and and, and to, to take it a step further, and I remember, okay, the Catholic Church had a stranglehold on everything for over a thousand years until the mid-1500s. This is only the mid-1600s at the latest. And this is what they said, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. They called the Pope the Antichrist. 
And that, I mean, that's a bold statement, especially during that time. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith was a very bold, courageous stand for the Word of God and everything that the Word of God espouses when it comes to doctrine. During that period in England's history in which the Westminster Confession was being defined, there was a civil war that was waged against the British crown. Oliver Cromwell, that's probably a name that you recognize at least, but he was a cavalry commander that led the opposition force that ousted the king, attempted to establish a commonwealth in England in the late, mid to late 1600s. But those efforts failed. The monarchy was eventually reestablished, which you know that to be true because by the 1700s, uh, and by the late 1700s even, that's what America was fighting against and trying to gain her freedom from, was a king that was telling them what they had to do, Right? Uh, but tens of thousands of Presbyterians and Puritans. Now think about when this is. 1600s, right? The mid-1600s. What do you know happened in 1620? The Plymouth Plantation, the pilgrims came over, right? So a lot of that stuff was happening. And, and, and I'm, trying to, I'm trying to put this together in your mind to, to try to help, make, help it all make sense, Right? But you had the Presbyterians, the Puritans, independent, uh, independents that fled to America in search of political liberty, but also in search of religious liberty because they were not allowed to practice these things, the Westminster Confession of Faith and so on, that they were espousing because the Church of England was not Presbyterian, right? It was Anglican, and that was the official religion, and you were not allowed to be anything but that. They weren't Catholic. But you didn't have a choice. You were Anglican, and you paid into the Anglican church and all of that stuff, or you were persecuted. So we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. But since we're on the topic, let me address it now rather than bring it up later. One of the errors, and this is what we'll end with tonight, but one of the errors of the... It's late. I need to stop. I, I don't want to get into all of this and then take you till 8.30 tonight, and that's probably what, it, probably what it will do. So let me stop there for tonight, all right? We'll get into this later. Let me, let me tell you what the error is, and then we'll, we'll talk about it next week. Um, one of the errors of the Westminster Confession is that it reflected John's Calvin's, John Calvin's system of predestination theology, which is a lot of what Reformed theology is about. And that predestination theology is known as Calvinism and has been summarized in the tulip theory. All right? I'm going to give it to you right here so you can see what it is. We'll talk about it next week. But the tulip theory stands for the total depravity of man, which means that man is incapable of responding to the gospel on his own. If God does not give you the ability to respond to the gospel, then you cannot respond to the gospel. That's the total depravity of man. Unconditional election mean God, means God chooses who will be saved and who will be lost. Um, and again, we're getting into this without, without being able to explain these things. But limited atonement means that Christ died for only those who will be saved. He didn't die for the whole world. He only died for those who actually will be saved. That's what limited atonement means. And I hope these things are, are throwing up red flags to you. Um, and that you're thinking of different verses in the Bible that really fly right in the face of this doctrine. Limited atonement? Jesus Christ's death was not for everybody? It was only for those who actually will be saved? No, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't go with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever 
believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That doesn't sound like limited atonement to me. The I is irresistible grace, means that, that a sinner cannot resist God's call to salvation. If God is calling you to salvation, you don't have a choice. You're going to accept it. That's irresistible grace. And the last one is perseverance of the saints, means that those who are saved are going to hold out faithful to the end. That means if you're not faithful to the end, you never, you, you never got saved. Essentially, you can lose your salvation. Because if you got saved and you were faithful and you didn't stay faithful till the end and you die and you were in your sin, so to speak, then you either lost your salvation or you never had it in the first place. And you never had it in the first place because you didn't persevere till the end. So well, there's a lot of things about the, this, this, uh, that Calvin, Calvinism and this, this predestinarian theology, this Reformation theology, Reformed theology is what it's known as today. Um, it's right in a lot of areas, but the Westminster Confession's teachings in, in those areas are contrary to the Word of God. And we're going to have to wait until next week till we get into them. I was planning to get to it tonight, and I hate to leave you hanging on that, but I'll do what the, what the Sunday school teachers always do when they get to a point in a story where they're about to tell you what happened, and then they say, come back next week, and you'll find out what happened, all right? We'll look at some of these verses, a lot of these verses next week when we get back together, all right? Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for an opportunity we have to study your word. I thank you for uh, the fact that we have your word and that we can rely on it for everything that we need in faith and practice and doctrine. And God, I pray that you'd help us to stand on the truth of the word of God and not on man-made doctrines or theology or any of these other things. We thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.